You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Thank you, Lydia, and thank you, God, for your word to us. Uh, It's good to see all of you and all these connections here with us tonight. Uh, I, I saw a short video of a, a high school graduate yesterday in his graduation mortarboard hat in front of his online graduation, and but there's like honking going on outside, and it's super distracting, and he said, his, his text said, uh, when you're trying to graduate, but your next door neighbor is turning 12, uh, another guy said, like, try explaining that video and that text to yourself three months ago. It would have been impossible. So the strange has just become the new normal for us, including Zoom Church. And it's weird that this is starting to feel normal. But we've been working our way uh, all the way through Colossians so far uh, on Zoom. We've been working through this incredible small letter. And a few of you have lightheartedly uh, been making fun of me lately for trading in Lord of the Rings sermon illustrations for Disney illustrations the last few weeks. And that's true. Uh, some of that may be subconscious just because like Disney Plus has become a good friend in our house amidst the lockdown. But Uh, It's also been a little intentional. Uh, Kids, we are so glad that you are with us. Uh, For many of you who only sometimes join us in the big service uh, because you're hanging out with your incredible teachers in Christchurch Kids, this whole thing has been just kind of weird, huh? Like, not only are you joining us for a service that's kind of long and on the computer, but it can even be a little bit harder when you're in your own house and your own toys and books are calling out your name in distraction. But maybe the many weeks that we are meeting here on Zoom will give you a little small taste for why we and your parents think it's so important to be together every week. That we tend to forget what we often think about the world and ourselves isn't always right. But what God says is right. We need to be reminded of that. What we often feel isn't right. And that we can tend toward even forgetting that God is there. And so we need regular reminders. We come together every Sunday to worship God, together as his people, not just by ourselves. We come to sit together under God's word and to encourage each other as we do this. Sometimes it might be a little boring and hard to pay attention. That's okay. If you're six years old or seven or eight years old, you've got about five or six hundred Sundays left with us until you turn 18. And on the one hand, that's really scary. We're, we only have about 10 or 12 more years and five or 600 more Sundays to teach you so much of what we want to teach you. But on the other hand, if you're with us for five or 600 more Sundays, with each year of your life, you're paying a little bit more attention and a little bit more attention. You're just going to learn so much about God and his love for you in Christ. And hopefully... God's going to use all of this along with your reading the Bible on your own and conversations with your parents to spark a love for God and your life for Christ, for your life within the church. So kids, especially those of you who aren't with us as regularly in our all together service, we are so glad that you're here. And tonight we're just going to keep going with the whole Disney thing. Remember, remember when Simba is out with Timon and Pumbaa, right? Uh, And he's avoiding his past because he's feeling guilty about what happened to his father, Mufasa. And he isn't going home to confront evil, and he isn't going home to care for his family and for his kingdom. A pretty weird thing that happens then. Uh, We shouldn't expect it to happen to us, but Mufasa, his father, appears to him in the clouds and tells him what? Remember? 
What, what does Mufasa tell him in the clouds? Does he say, hey, Simba, stop being a coward. Hey, Simba, pull yourself together. Get your life together. Fix yourself and then go back and fix the kingdom. Now, what does he say? What does he say that then gets Simba running toward the kingdom and that gets Rafiki laughing for joy? What does Mufasa say? He says, remember, remember who you are. A past remembrance of a present reality, who you are, is what actually motivates towards future action. Well, Paul now appears to the Colossians, as it were, in the clouds, and he tells them, remember, I can't do James Earl Jones, but remember who you are. Paul has spent the last two chapters pounding home the supremacy of Christ in the universe and in our lives. He is pounding the work of Christ in the universe and in our lives. And for those who are united to Christ by faith in his accomplished work, it is finished. Stop trying to earn your way into the family of God by external behavior. You are in the family of God. But Paul, perhaps anticipating what some might be thinking, if Christ has done all, and he, my, by my faith in him, uh, my behavior can't earn my salvation, then my behavior is irrelevant to my salvation. So I'll just live my life however I'd like. Well, no, no, Paul is going to say, as he here transitions into chapter 3. We're going to break down verses 1 through 11 in two halves. And Paul, if Paul is confronting what he anticipates might be Uh, a tendency toward us just thinking that our lives don't really matter. I can live my life because of grace, right? It's true. But now Paul is going to confront us here with two sections that we'll think through. First, be who you are. And second, put off who you were. Be who you are and put off who you were. Now, so we've introed now for way too long. So let's just get into it. Uh, First with be who you are, verses one through four. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. These these four verses are just loaded with if-then statements, both explicitly, when he says if this, then this, but then also implied. Paul is just always doing this, not just within individual sentences uh, here in Colossians, but often with entire books. He will front load his books or his letters with unbelievably rich theology that then finally takes a turn with how this should specifically play out in the lives of Christians. In Romans, the letter to the Romans, it takes 11 chapters, 11 before chapter 12, verse 1, Paul finally says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Like, this is the entire purpose that he has written this letter. He could have just written Romans 12, 1 and mailed that off to the Romans, right? But he wanted to front load this. If, if he didn't front load that letter, then that therefore statement, this command for the Romans, would have carried not, not, not a lot of theological weight. So theologians, uh, writers, counselors... They all call this strategy by different names, sometimes indicatives and imperatives. What is indicatively true or just true 
comes before any imperative or command to action or declarations and obligations, what is declared to be true, and then how we are obliged to live into that reality or if-thens or other names for this kind of thing. But what, what is so important is the order. This is what's crucial. The theological reality always must come before any behavioral change and never vice versa. Just look at verse 1. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. He does not say, seek the things that are above, if then you want to be raised with Christ. So because chapters 1 and 2 are true, and you are already alive in Christ, you are buried with him in your death to self, you are raised to resurrection life through his resurrection, all then symbolically ratified in your baptism, remember But what's Paul actually encouraging the Colossians and us to then do? So if we were to to take verses 1 and 2 out of context, we might be tempted to just like go sell all that we have, go live a, a life as a hermit in the mountains, and then just pray in solitude for the rest of our lives. Like anything earthly is inherently bad, we might come to the conclusion, and we just have to set our minds on heaven. We should just focus our minds and our hopes on the place that we're going to one day float away to. But that's not what Paul is encouraging. Though he doesn't use the word heaven here, in the Bible, heaven is generally more emphasized not as a place, like a, a, an ultimate destination, but a realm of spiritual reality, a kingdom of the right rule and reign of God. Not necessarily emphasized as a place that Christians will then one day go to after our death. So there are times in the biblical story where the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world have greater or lesser overlap. But yet we see in Colossians 1.20 that that Christ, Paul says, has reconciled all things to himself in earth or in heaven. He has brought the overlap. In Revelation 21, the end of all things, it's actually heaven enveloping and then transforming earth as we know it at the end of all things, rather than us finally just escaping to heaven. New Jerusalem in Revelation 21 descends to the earth and then renews all things. And so thinking of heaven as a wider scoped theme throughout scripture, it's not inappropriate for us to understand this, not as like, all right, Paul is telling us to set your mind on a place, like your ultimate destination, but rather, perhaps more likely, set your mind on the kingdom of God. Not necessarily the time where you will finally get all your questions answered or the place where you finally get all that you've ever wanted to or, or, or whatever that is, or whatever uh, earthly hope that we have for heaven. Rather, set your mind on the fully consummated age where we get God the fully experienced peace of his love. Set your mind on the fully realized age of heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we might say, set your minds on things that are above, but also set your minds on things that are ahead, like ahead in time, a present reality that will then be made fully known and fully realized in the future now here, which is why, again, it was... So silly and futile to want to, Paul is confronting earlier in chapter 2, to want to return to the past way of the shadows. The present and future reality is what brings true life change, not languishing in the past. Genuine holiness comes, like I don't know, like if, if uh, Jesus has finished work and place in heaven, if, if I'm like 
out on the sea, floating in this tiny little raft. But I've hooked Jesus by faith. And now for the rest of my life, I'm just reeling him in. Uh, Not necessarily pulling him towards me, but pulling myself toward him with the energizing help of his spirit. And simultaneously, we are all reeling, even better, as a church together in the same raft, all reeling together. And then the crazy part is that in our reeling, the heavenly realm and age are actually coming together more and more, being made known, more known in this world and in our lives. Set your mind on this reality and reel. Verse 3, for you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. This is the doctrine of our union with Christ. And Colossians 3, 3 is the basis of that great line that we sing from before the throne of God above, where we sing, one with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Or as we sang this evening in Rock of Ages, let me hide myself in thee. This is exactly what we were getting after two weeks ago. That receiving Christ, this language or phrase of receiving Christ, has some biblical grounding. We receive the news and reality that he is Lord. We saw that in chapter 2. But what is way more emphasized in the Bible is Christ receiving us, of our being united to him. I think I've shared my favorite illustration of union with Christ before with you all before on a Sunday, but since it's Disney season, I just got to keep it going. In his book, Union with Christ, Rankin Wilborn, who grew up in Southern California, had a high school friend that worked at Disneyland, and she eventually worked her way all the way up to be Mickey Mouse, to wear the Mickey costume at Disneyland. And at high school, this, this gal was shy, she was timid, she was very introverted, But when this gal put on the Mickey Mouse costume, she became Mickey Mouse. She became energetic, outgoing, and bold. She took on the characteristics of the character she had become. And our union with Christ is that times a million. Verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. By faith... The old self of sin and death in the the Christian is not only forgiven, but it is crucified with Christ and then is united to the righteous life of Christ in his resurrection. It becomes the life of Christ. Now, does this mean that we now never sin? If we are united to Christ by faith, then we never sin? Absolutely not. If, If you were wearing the Mickey costume at Disneyland, does that mean that you won't still get angry with demanding kids or impatient parents? You won't ever experience fear or anxiety in the costume. You won't ever experience lust, selfishness. You won't ever badmouth people under your breath because they can't even see your mouth anyway. No. I think a misunderstanding of this doctrine and a misunderstanding of places like 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past and the new has come. I think we can sometimes think in this way and think, oh man, Like, if I'm a new creation and I'm wearing the Mickey costume, but I'm not acting like Mickey all the time, man, if I'm not careful, like the boss is going to come in and he's going to take away the Mickey costume, I'm just going to be left with nothing. And this can be devastating. It can be paralyzing in our lives for thinking, well, I'm still sinning, so I must not be a Christian. Well, rather, for those who are staking their lives on the reality of the empty tomb, if you are presently trusting in his work as your substitute and king, even with a weak faith, you are in the Mickey costume. You are not uh, threatened by 
the costume being taken away from you by your disobedience. Your obedience is not what has given you your union with Christ. It is Christ's work on your behalf. But now, remember who you are. You are united. You are hidden with Christ and God. There is more grace in God than there is sin in you. Forget what is behind and now press on to what is ahead. And this is just a mind-blowing spiritual reality that God the Father is pleased with you and he welcomes you home. And on top of that, verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul is writing to some Turkish villagers, insignificant, now anonymous people, who will one day at Christ's appearing be transformed in the dazzling holiness of his glory. No matter their their suffering, no matter their anxiety, their worry, their loneliness, no matter the disappointment or unmet expectations of this age, their hope, our hope, is not in this age, but is in the age to come and in the return and the coming of Christ. Come, Lord Jesus. And make all things new, fully overlapping heaven and earth, fully satisfying every disappointment and eviscerating the nagging presence of sin altogether. It is coming. Now remember who you are. Be who you are. Live into the qualities of the character you are wearing. And not only that, but now secondly, in verses 5 through 11, put off who you were. There was a somewhat viral video around Christmas time a year or two ago of a bunch of guys in Santa costumes, and they were in this huge brawl in the East Village of New York City. Like, any brawl video is jarring, and it's just horrible. But why was this one so jarring? Why did this video go so viral? Well, because of the cognitive dissonance, right, of a lot of guys in the character of the jolly old man who are not bringing joy and Christmas cheer, but are rather bringing broken jaws and bloody noses. Because of the character you have taken on, become that. Put off the character that you were. Not in a pretend like, I hate my life, but ho, 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 I'm just going to pretend and pretend to be jolly and someday I'll be jolly or something. No, but really and existentially, you will one day take on the fully conformed image of Christ, the full character. But in the meantime, put off the old character, the old self which lived only for the self and only out of fear of man or a pursuit of pleasure or of self-advancement. Put all of that to death because it is not who you are now. Colossians 3 has one of these lists that sometimes appears in Paul's letters. And this list here is to just not leave us guessing of what actually is part of the old self, what actually is to be left behind. To name it clearly. And in verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he will then confront right off the bat a category of sexual sin. Not because this is like his thing. Paul's like super repressed and now he wants to make sure that no one is acting badly around the world or something in some kind of legalistic way. No, Paul knows that identity can so quickly get wrapped up in a disordered sexual desire. And while this reality is felt more deeply in many ways than others, all of us are disordered and misoriented toward the direction that God intends for humanity. In understanding all of this as a temporary gift from God, pointing us 
like Disney World signs, to the real destination of our full and final communion with Christ. And so Paul starts with the wide umbrella of immorality, which is just anything outside of what God has intended to be enjoyed in marriage. Beginning with the external wide umbrella category, he then moves further and further and then into the heart of impurity, of passion, of evil desire, and then capping it all off with covetousness, which may not be observable at all. So maybe go back and listen to our sermon on the 10th commandment on covetousness or even the 7th commandment on adultery if you missed those from September and October of last year if you'd like to think more on those things. But Paul is saying here that all of this disordering of desire boils down toward covetousness of wanting what others have, which is really just idolatry. Idolatry of the thing that we think we cannot be happy We cannot be satisfied. We cannot be fulfilled without. Or an idolatry of the self, which says, I know better than what God has said. So I have now come to realize that he is stingy and withholding, so I will just take matters into my own hands. Now, including evil desire in this list, the Bible elsewhere is fairly clear that temptation is not sin. Even Jesus was tempted So this can be helpful for us in countering wrong thinking of the thinking of, well, maybe God is just constantly angry with me for even being drawn toward that, which I know is not right. But one writer says, uh, sin begins with the idea of illicit gratification presented in the mind in temptation. Or when the idea of illicit gratification presented to the mind in temptation is not at once put to death, but is instead fondled and cherished like a little pet. I think C.S. Lewis's uh, image in The Great Divorce is the best of this man who just has this little dragon, this little, this little serpent, this little pet that he knows is eating him alive, but he likes to feed and keep around. This is the difference between temptation and sin. Put to death the old man, the disordered desire pressed in by the powers to its extremes. And thinking through temptation and sin this week, I've been so helped in remembering from chapter 2 that Jesus has stripped, he has humiliated the powers in open shame. Like, like that disordered desire that I am experiencing temptation in right now, that's just some like 19-year-old kid holed up in a dark computer mill who's just pounding orange sodas as he attempts to, to snag me, to snare me in this disinformation campaign. But Jesus has triumphed. He has put that disinformation campaign to open shame. He has triumphed in his death and resurrection, and he has given me the victory to obey him, to find contentment and joy and obedience in him. And all of these things, verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. This verse seems so contrary to what we want the Bible to say, isn't it? And if we rip this verse out of context, we might be thinking that the Bible is saying something that it's actually not. And then it can just heap unbearable amounts of shame and failure onto our weak shoulders. We might read Colossians 3.6 and think, well, just go ahead and fix your sexual brokenness, your broken sexual desire, or else get your lives and your thoughts together because God is coming to judge. But do you see what we've done again? We've gotten the order of indicative and imperative of if-then all wrong. We're operating from the then to the if rather from the if to the then. 
be who you are and put to death what you were. Sexually broken sinners who are united to Christ by faith are dearly beloved children of God. Presently, now, you want to know how I know that? Because every human who has ever lived is a sexually broken sinner. That's reality. But what is also reality is that broken and weak sinners are qualified by Christ and are welcomed and loved. So go back and read Colossians 1 and 2. That Jesus accomplishes your acceptance and your salvation. Not you, but make no mistake. The wrath of God is coming against sin. So the question for us becomes, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ in in a way in which he absorbs and satisfies the wrath of God against rebellion, against your rebellion, which opposed and even still sometimes, though less and less hopefully, still presently opposes God? Is Christ your present mediator? Is he your advocate? Is he welcoming you now, presently, into the life of the triune God? Are you right now, in this moment, under wrath or are you under grace? is a question that we ought to let linger. But he keeps going in verse 7. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Everything that we have thought about already in these umbrella categories of disordered desire, but then even disordered desire, he then goes on to say that the new man, the conformed to the image of Christ man, the church, his bride, is not just a community of individuals who merely like to police each other's sexual lives and our own, but... Now, in verse 8, we are pursuing love in all areas of life, in putting away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from our mouths. Shannon Lair this week, if you missed it in the weekly email, she pointed out in a great video that being at home so constantly has exposed some areas of sin that she didn't necessarily realize were so dark. And I tend to think, or I think we tend to think that, like, that's just not me. Like when I respond in anger or wrath or malice, when obscene and slandering words come out of my mouth, it's just because I've been so stressed. I haven't had time to unwind. My family and I or my roommates, we're just always on top of each other, and that's just not the real me. And so we excuse our sinful frustration. We excuse our anger by putting the blame on other people or on circumstances. But I'll never forget what one of my pastors in Austin said about a decade ago, in which he said, home you is the real you. Sit on that for a week or two. Home you is the real you. If your coworkers or your teammates or your professors think that you are wonderfully kind and encouraging and patient and hardworking, but your roommates or your spouse or your parents or your kids observe you to be angry, discouraging, impatient, and lazy, well, it's likely that the work you is more of an act. And when you let your guard down at home, the mask drops and the real you is shown. When circumstances and people squeeze on the sponge of your soul, what comes out? People and circumstances didn't create the sin that comes pouring out, but they reveal it. Now, by God's grace, by remembering what Christ has done in infinitely immense love for you, to bring you from life to death, remember who you are. Put all of that former stuff of death to death. Set your mind on the things of the coming heavenly age 
and let the sponge be drained and let Jesus absorb all of that sin and then refill you with his life. Again, from Philippians 3, like when Paul is saying, forgetting what is behind and now straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal. Like a distance runner who doesn't start like giving himself high fives after completing one lap. No, he's concentrating on the finish line. Nor getting discouraged or pressing like a a golfer or a baseball player who's experiencing some kind of a slump or something, overthinking and then getting super down on ourselves, thus just making things worse in failure, not overly encouraged nor overly discouraged by the day-to-day results of my life, but resting in the finished work of Christ that he he has run and he has won the race for me. So verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This command from Paul to put off is the same language of what people do with their clothes. We say take off, right? I take off my jacket or I take off my shoes. But put on in verse 10 is exactly the way that we use it. I put on my jacket or I put on my shoes. This is the same kind of Greek language that they would have used for taking off or putting on clothes. In Colossians 3, 9 through 10, it's just a go-to counseling metaphor. Because of what Jesus has already accomplished for you, take off the old clothes. Take off the clothes of the old man and put on the clothes of Christ robed in righteousness. This paragraph has mostly been about putting off, about putting to death the old man, taking off the lingering selfishness, covetousness, idolatry, anger that not only robs us of joy, but is just completely antithetical toward our identity of who we are, so that we are like drunken, brawling Santa Clauses. Put it off. Take off the old man. There is effort there, real, real in the coming age. Real yourself in by faith to Christ. And even though he gives us a hint of then putting on in verse 10 next week, just as he's given us lists of things to put off here, we're going to see all the things and characteristics and attitudes to instead put on. It's hard to stop right here. We're about to start stop here in verse 11. It's hard to stop this passage without really getting to what's next. We've put off a lot. Next week, what do we put on? Not just of what God has saved us from, but what he has saved us to. But what God has called his people to is new and abundant life. And not just as individuals, but as verse 11, his corporate together body to grow up together in love. And since it is the love and the work of Christ that redeems, frees, saves his people, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And he unites people from all nationalities, all backgrounds, all cultures, all levels of education and socioeconomic statuses. But Christ is all and in all. If someone is in Christ, united to him, then I am intrinsically and intimately united to that person by the blood of Christ. Going back to the old way of suspicion or discrimination of those who don't look like me or don't talk like me or don't read like me or don't live like me will inevitably Put me right back to that old place, that old man of anger, of malice, of slander, lying, and covetousness. Put that mess to death. 
Christ has died so that you might die. The old man of all that might die. And he lives in glory that we might live in holiness. Because you are not who you once were. Now be who you are. Not to become who you are, but to be who you are. United to Christ in glory. This is where we're going. This is where we are now. And I pray that together uh, in our conversations around our dinner tables this week, on FaceTime or Zoom check-ins or in our GCs this week, we might let this truth start to settle more and more into our souls of putting off the old man because of who we presently and future will be. Let's pray to that end. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have come to us in Christ, that you have not left us dead in our sins, but that you have, by the work of the triune work of redemption and of salvation and of adoption have made us alive and have welcomed us into your family. Help us to remember who we are in Christ. Help us to put off the old man and to put on the new. Might we experience a life of, a, of joy, of contentment, of life to others, not just of receiving, but of giving because of your abundance toward us now overflowing to the world around us. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.